right, here's <clears throat> a couple of rules here. I have a soft voice, so I'm not trying not to pin myself on the podium. But can you hear me back there? So at any time that I my voice starts trailing down, or I start muttering, or I fall asleep, would you guys give me one of these to say wake up or whatever on the thing? That would be helpful on this. I uh, <clears throat> I have been looking forward to getting here. I uh, and as Eric just said, I, I really wanted to know what it is that I could uh, say that would be helpful for you. And we just had a, uh, a kind of a rough session at lunchtime. And what Eric encouraged, which I was trying to get out of, is I was going to go run through my career. And uh, I didn't want to do that, but he says it would probably be good for me to just really go fast through that. And I think you'll see a lot of different questions that pop out there. <clears throat> at lunchtime, I was um, guided with a few questions which allowed me to get into some anecdotal things that happened to me or how I got from here to there and how did that work. And that made it flow easier. But Eric thinks that I need to run through this really quickly. So I'm going to do this in an all-time speed. Uh, and... Uh, I won't try to elaborate on that <clears throat> to try to save open for questions, okay? And uh, it's going to be really embarrassing if I get to the end and there are no questions and we call the class at 15 minutes because you just want to go study. And uh, so then I, and some of y'all know me because I, I meet with some of the students over here periodically. So if that happens, I get to ask you questions. And trust me, you want me to ask you questions. It's really awkward when that happens sometimes. So let me, uh, let me see if I can jump into this. And, uh, two things I found out is rekindling my skills on PowerPoint was really tough. So this presentation may actually really suck because of my PowerPoint skills. So let me, uh, let me see if I can go into it. So I, <clears throat> I divide my career in essentially five phases. And you'll be able to see distinctive demarcations in those, uh, on those particular phases. Large company, I, I had a period that I was in large companies. The second, doing startup to mezzanines, that is actually building companies from startup to uh, going in and taking mezzanine companies and integrating them. Uh, my investment management, which I actually have a big company. Eric asked me a question, what changed in my life uh, as a manager when I did this one particular company, and I said, the one thing I found out about them is finance, finance, finance. Because I, I raised up to about $3.7 billion of capital and debt, and you're always in front of, of private equity and large investors, and you're talking finance. So I put that in there. But I also went out and built a, uh, a venture capital firm, raised $800 million bucks to go invest in other companies. So that's my <coughs> investment management. Then I say uh, government service and consulting. The government service, um, you'll see very quickly, and I, I describe that as my Starbucks phase, because how I got into that was I was drinking too much Starbucks with an individual, and I got pulled into Iraq uh, from my Starbucks piece. And then the last part, which is what I'm doing now, is a lot of nonprofit. I uh, graduated <coughs> from Mississippi State in 1970. I am a Starkville, Starkville <coughs> Knight, I guess you'd call it. 
uh, my hometown of Starkville. So I finished undergraduate nuclear engineering in 1970, graduated then, graduated, also got my commission uh, as a second lieutenant uh, from state. I Army gave me a year. We were right in the middle of the Vietnam War, and they gave me a year to finish up my MBA. And then I went into a waiting period to um, to go to Vietnam. I already had orders, but I had to get my I had to, I'm an artillery guy, so I had to get the artillery school. And uh, you're laughing. I don't know if you're a Fort Sill guy, it's a single mountain, but uh, you had to go out and have a single mountain experience uh, before you went over to be an FO. So. Uh, did that. I put down graduate at MIT because you'll find out later. Uh, company sent me back as a slow fellow to uh, MIT, and I picked up another master's at that point in time. All right, see if this. Hold it. Eric? Yeah. Did it jam? No, this thing has been cracking out on us here. It says update is ready to install. I know. Here we go. First part of my career, uh, AT&T. Uh, everybody said, tell you market. Well, AT&T was a monopoly. Right? We owned all the telecommunications in the United States. And uh, that's where I started. I uh, spent almost 14 years there, but I was, uh, took, was given 10 separate jobs. I moved uh, 12 times during that 14 years counting my Army experience, where I left out and came back in, uh, at 12 different physical places, and the jobs I took, I moved, were all different. I went from operations, I went into sales, I went uh, uh, back to operations, I went up and did the, took over the manpower planning for AT&T, came back and became a facility engineer for the nine southern states. I moved from the nine southern states doing that, and I went up to handle the uh, Sears National Account, which is the second largest account. They sent me to MIT. Came back and uh, did the engineering planning for all the uh, technologies except the large switching machines. And then I went and, and took over uh, the Northeast, the New York and New England states for long distance. So I had a variety of experiences at AT&T. That was the great thing about it. Uh, I was sharing with the group before. I got thrown into some new, uh, they kind of knew me before I knew myself and they kept throwing me into the problems and uh, allowing me to kind of take off and go. And it's, uh, it was a good thing, because I learned, had a lot of experiential learning at AT&T on how to uh, organize and manage and bring groups together and solve problems. I decided that I was going to um, uh, go out and uh, at the end of my experience up in New York and New England, my wife and I didn't want to live in New York for the rest of our lives. And so I decided I'd leave that career, even though I was at the corporate officer level. And then my next <coughs> next stop, I would have been officially a corporate officer, and start over and I started building <coughs> companies. And so the first company I trialed was uh, Data America. Great business plan, targeted right at the, the uh, problems that occurred because of the split up of AT&T and uh, building the facilities between the regional bell operating companies. And, and providing that to them because they could not do that themselves, and providing data on our packet switching at that time. It was what you know as data today. It was called packet switching. Uh, and providing that to those companies to be able to do packet switching applications. Raised a lot of money. We got 12 million bucks from two players. And uh, what I learned from Data America very quickly is 
It's, everything's about cash. You can have the best business plan, best profit in the world on paper, but if you run out of cash, um, you're in deep trouble. And you better know when you're going to run out of cash because you don't start thinking about where you're going to get the next tranche of cash at the uh, you know, two months before you run out. So I, I always say cash is king. I also say I stole that company and got out by the skin of my teeth. I mean, I didn't make any money off of that. I didn't impugn my reputation, but it scared the crud out of me. And I learned that from that point on, I'm always staring at my cash. Uh, <clears throat> I told you I sold a company. I moved to Atlanta. Uh, the, in Atlanta, I got there because actually my mother, who was living here, had a stroke. And I needed to get closer to be able to get over here. And so the second guy, the guy that didn't buy my company, said, hey, why don't you come work for me? And this is what I'm doing. And he was, a, he, Gene was a serial entrepreneur, and he had a company, this company, that was rolling up long-distance companies. At that time, everybody was going after little pieces of the long-distance market. And Gene and a guy called Cam Lanier, <coughs> both of them are actually billionaires today, uh, made their money by rolling up these companies. So I just sort of take a section of that and... Long and short, I was there about nine months. They had rolled up about 2% of the market share of buying these companies. And lo and behold, MCI and Sprint had a bidding work by 2% of the market share in the long distance market was a lot of money. And so they came in and swooped in and bought it. But the good news was I made the most money per day I've ever made there. Because they had just given me a whole bunch of stock options and a bunch of restricted stock. And that cashed out when they bought the company. And I was able to be a free agent for a period of time, which was about all of the 30, 60 days. And then I uh, started getting, with being headhunted out by some others. So the next job I went to was uh, I got asked, and I won't go how I got there, but I got asked to go over and start a, uh, a new company for British Telecom to take them off of the island. Uh, all the PTTs, the telephone companies, were centralized in their countries. That's how they got their authority. Now the world's opening up to become a new, highly competitive market in communications. And they needed to get out of England and out of the UK and to compete. They were one of the top four players in the world at that point in time. But they, all their revenue was generally in the UK and on the relationships they had between the other PTTs. So I started, was asked to start a company to get them out of the United Kingdom. And uh, <clears throat> the, you know, the short of the story there is they're perceived, their market image is a stodgy old telephone company. So how do you go sell a stodgy old telephone company to a fast-moving German company or to a uh, focused Japanese company or to all the US companies? And the issue that those companies had, which is where we ended up being to create a creative market called the international outsourcing market, was that all those major companies had this, that had data centers around the world. And those trouble, troubles happened in India, between Spain and Paris, or from uh, Sydney to Los Angeles. They had to have people in their corporation to be able to troubleshoot those because the telephone companies didn't do that and to be able to fix those problems. But that's a lot of staff for a company. And particularly, 
if everybody speaks different languages. So the Spanish don't speak to the French. In fact, I don't think they speak to them today. But they are actually, they, you know, they have uh, a hard time communicating, particularly when you're talking about lower level employees. And likewise, in India or China or whatever. So that was the market opportunity. Uh, we spent a lot of research money to understand that market. I uh, was sharing with somebody we did what they call conjoint analysis um, and pulling all the variables and what people, what companies would pay for this versus what their alternatives were. And we launched into that market and we went from zero to a billion dollars in a little under four years uh, in the company. And it was highly, highly profitable. And it took British Telecom and placed them in Asia and put them in mainland Europe and put them in the United States. And I segued out of that company because they were doing so well, they went and bought 20% of them to MCI. So DT came in and bought 20% of MCI. Um, I was asked to go back to London to uh, uh, head up what they call their business unit. And I had already literally had enough fish and chips. So I had written my contract that they couldn't tell me to do that unless I uh, concurred with it. And since I didn't want any more fish and chips, and I had bound stock, because I created a bound stock of which I would be compensated on for doing this, then it, it uh, automatically invested or invested all the bound stock, and I could cash out. So I cashed out a BT when we bought the 20% of MCI. Now, by the way, the story, the rest of that story is that MCI had cooked their books, and so BT walked away from the deal, and then kept the same deal with AT&T on a different level. So AT&T and DT, but I wasn't around when that happened. But they branded, you know, they branded that company. In fact, the brand is still both brands, both Syncordia, which is the, uh, I think it's up there. Yeah, at the top. Syncordia and, and Concert are two brand names in the industry now, associated. And you can still look those up. From there, I, uh, since I had done European work, I was headhunted out to do a, uh, uh, asked to go over and look at some companies in Russia and to see whether those companies were worth anything. And uh, on the way back, I ran to a friend and got introduced uh, over, over bar to a, uh, uh, the fiber optic business or the railroads in Europe. He told me about an idea he had always willing to steal somebody's idea. I asked him, would he mind if I stole his idea? Because I was going back to talk to this investor about uh, uh, the things he wanted me to do in Russia. And I came back, and that investor was George Soros. And I went to Soros, and I said, I'll do this for you in Russia if you'll fund me on this deal in Europe, in the railroad. He said, give me a business plan. And I uh, gave him a business plan. And, uh, so I gave him three business plans. One of them was a, uh, a normal business plan. One of them was a highly aggressive, and one of them we call shoot the moon. And he said, <coughs> obviously, we're going to shoot the moon. So each one of those had a price tag on how much money he would invest into me. And so I did that and uh, then went back and cut a deal with the 10 European railroads for their right of way. I started putting fiber optics on that, later cut a deal with the highways. Now the European markets are opening up the telecom, and we were the uh, the primary alternative to providing companies and other that want to provide telecommunications services in Europe to buy their supply from. So uh, 
uh, that company is just public. Stuff that I did in Russia, <coughs> we expanded. We, at one time, I had grown in Russia to 17 companies. We had 17 separate companies in Russia. Moved into the Ukraine and other parts of Eastern Europe. And we did the same thing in Western Europe. So at the, that point in time, we had a 40 plus companies that I either started or bought that we had pulled together under GTS, which we were talking a little bit, brought in an entirely different set of business problems with how do you manage uh, this many companies. Now we're up, as uh, Eric said, to around 4,000 employees. What, 4,000 employees are hard enough, but my 4,000 employees all spoke different languages. And you had one central management and we were in a fast growth situation. So that brought some unique problems in terms of how we did that. Um, so after GTS, uh, I went into what I call the event. Uh, the last one was my investment manager because Eric asked, well, didn't that change my job? And for that last job, 40% of my time after I started the company was out raising money or dealing with the investors that had already invested in it. I changed the entire, the entire way the way I allocated my time. Because obviously your investors are important and um, you had to make sure that the stories were consistent. We were a public company and that brings on its own set of challenges. <coughs> the second part of my, what I call the uh, investment management phase was Lehman Brothers. So I left GTS actually for a personal reason. Uh, my wife had gotten sick on the board I had to leave. And uh, one of my uh, board members was asked to go to Lehman Brothers to start uh, a venture capital firm. And uh, he and I were, we've got to be good friends there. He asked me to come with him and help start that. So we went out and raised $800 million. We looked at, during that period of time, about 2,000 companies. They all sent their business plans into us and tried to um, uh, get us to invest into them. I actually physically kicked the tires, or maybe went out and looked at the companies in depth, the officers all, uh, to the uh, 100, about 125 companies, and we only invested in 11. So though, for those people who are going to go through this, oh, I think I just hit the wrong button here. Well, there we go. People who are going to go through this phase, uh, that kind of gives you a ratio. Because there's a lot of competition out there for money. And so that was kind of the ratio that normally falls out of venture capital, how many companies they look at and how many they really invest into. I have a chart later on that at the back that maybe we get into the questions of the kinds of things that we look at as a venture capitalist when a company walked in, what were we looking at? <clears throat> From there, which is, um, uh, I left Lehman Brothers when they had the big 9-11. I literally kind of missed that one by the skin of my teeth too. Because I was actually uh, <coughs> week, I went to New York. I stayed in the World Trade Center at just that one weekend. <coughs> my partner said, "Why don't you stay in Atlanta and cover an investment conference in Atlanta?" And so I stayed there. And otherwise, I would have been in the Marriott when the planes hit, just on normal schedule. So that was a skin of your teeth, and as it affected a lot of guys that worked for me, you know, a lot of young analysts that worked for me, and some of them were, uh, you know severely traumatized uh, by that because you know, one of them had somebody jump right in front of me you know, and all that. So it took a while for us to get them back. But from that, 
our our company, our excuse me, our fund got folded into other funds at Lehman Brothers because when the market crashed, uh, we were the youngest fund under the Lehman umbrella, Lehman Brothers umbrella, and we said our mandate, which is what you tell your shareholders that you're going to invest the money in, was into uh, high growth IT telecommunications. Uh, information companies, and when it collapsed, we turned to looking at buying up bad debt and taking over companies by buying their debt and folding in. But that wasn't in our mandate, and there were some other companies that did that, Lehman Brothers, so, so Lehman asked us to give the money back. It was the most painful thing I ever did was to give back $745 million <coughs> back to the investors and say, thank you very much for loaning us your money. But here's your money back. If you want to invest in one of these other funds, you can do that. So we, we had to close the fund and give the money back because of that. My Starbucks story, and I won't go into depth here, but let me say that I was drinking too much Starbucks. Met a guy. Guy got asked to go to Iraq to be the COO at the end of the class war. And because everything was falling apart and how we get the government stood back up, uh, we had one, man, one person, Ambassador Brenner, and he was, didn't have the skill levels to do that, and we had, he had a span of control of about 35 people. So they asked a good friend, uh, Admiral Red, um, who I had met through my children and had a lot of Starbucks with, to go over and to get the place organized in Iraq. And he came back and said, I'm going, but you're going to go with me. And that's kind of how I got to Iraq. Uh, so I went there, and uh, at that point in time, <coughs> I ended up, uh, I had 12 ministries under me. <coughs> to restand back up in Iraq. Uh, the telecom industry, which we took out their industry, their, their telecom went out in the first 30 minutes of the war. Uh, we hit all of their major switches in Iraq with the uh, J-Dams. And, and so we were going to replace all of their switching and rebuild their network and give them some infrastructure. They had no cellular, so we spun up five different cellular companies. I was the FCC for an entire period of time, and I can put that on my resume, resume that most people can't say that they were the FCC over Iraq, but I, I was it, and uh, allocating licenses and, and, and doing that. So that's, I got there to do it. The key thing is FR, the first responder network, the Iraqis had no way police forces to respond to each other when they were ambushed or coming in. They had no way to talk or to tie into us or there. So had to quickly build essentially a private network across Iraq and integrate it into, uh, and leave it where it could be integrated into their telecommunication system when we walked away. In addition to that, I ended up owning the transportation industry there. So I had the airports, the sea, the ports, the roads, the bridges, all of that to get rebuilt and get a plan to get rebuilt there and get the ministry going back up. All right, oh, there it goes. Uh, I retired again, coming out of Iraq, and um, my boss thought I did a good job, which was mainly I was the hatchet man over there. Uh, that was those, and we had people, but we sent the wrong people, so we had to go around and get rid of the wrong people, bring in the right people to help do this. So I was the guy that kind of did that. Uh, he was asked to step uh, by President Bush to build the National Counterterrorism Center. Uh, he called me and said, Jerry, would you come up here and be my counselor? I said, what is a council? I want you to do the same thing you did in Iraq. 
I want you to be there, and then you're going to be the guy that goes around and tells me what's broken down here. So I spent uh, about three years setting up the National Counterterrorism Center, and some major, as I think some of them you still read in the news today, major problems like foreign fighters, airplanes, who gets on airplanes, uh, biometrics, all those things were the major problems that were assigned to get organized and get a solution driven on that. Uh, left the National Counterterrorism Center, retired again, and Booz Allen Hamilton uh, said, hey, uh, I had pushed through the president's policies on the use of biometrics. So you know something about biometrics. We need to have a sector in Booz Allen focused on identity and biometrics. Would you come over and advise us on how to start that up? And so did that, and then they went international. And I had the most international experience, I think, at that point, anybody in Booz Allen. So they asked me would I go over and help them open offices over in uh, the GCC countries, you know, Kuwait, Qatar, Oman, UAE. We spent time opening up the door and to essentially introduce our portfolio, if you will. And our portfolio down below was cybersecurity, um, telecom infrastructure, identity systems, just to get into the door and start selling it. So I did that, and that ended up being my return. I can talk about lessons learned here at the, after y'all get questions, but uh, that was my career. Okay, that was for the nonprofits. I, I sit on three boards, nonprofit boards, uh, was chairman of two of them, and spend my time working on probably some more uh, impactful things to society than probably what I was doing back then. All right, so that's my career. What do you want to know? And please do not make me repeat that again. That would be, I probably couldn't tell it twice. And I only saw four people sleeping, so I know not all of you were sleeping. What would you like to know uh, about any, not necessarily the career, but things that got into that, or what kind of things uh, transitioned, or did I carry that too far there? How about I start with some questions and things? Oh, you've got questions already? Yeah, uh, yeah. They've that got, really is cheap. Huh? around 70 or so. so. 70? <laughs> yes. Lots of interest. So. I thought you guys were just not interested. And I saw you typing. And I thought you were, somebody was writing a resume on the, uh, on the last side. So uh, go ahead. Um, so one of the questions is, can you talk about how you feel that your experience at AT&T helped you in preparing you for leading a startup company in Hackney? This is Thomas Ritter. Where's Thomas? Somewhere here. All right, who's Sam? Somewhere this is not this is not being video conference somewhere else, is it? So. All right, <clears throat> um, that's that's a good question. I uh, I'm, I'm kind of like I mean I'm a Mississippi. Starkle graduated from Starkle High School, went to Mississippi State, get my head down, finished up in nuclear. Uh, you've got the piece, but I my perspective of myself of what I could do leaving the university was probably uh, a lot more diminished than what I was capable of doing. When I said AT&T kind of figured it out for me that they, guys, I got evaluated every three months and uh, if I did not succeed on that evaluation, I was terminated immediately. And that went on for four years. And so, and you could not back into the company. I mean, I couldn't be terminated off the program and rejoin over here because I was a good whatever. So that kind of focused you, right? That, that you say what you're going to do and you do it 
and you deliver. And that that gave me a kind of a charge, and I told the last group, you know, one of my biggest drivers is my fear of failing. So that gave me a goal, which is now, as I moved through, AT&T, which was part of the thing, threw me into not make-believe jobs, real jobs, real problems, every year, different. I'd get into marketing, or into sales. I'd never sold anything in my life. Now I'm running a sales team. How, how, what do you do? And so I focused, got through that one. I came into facility engineering, you know, the, and, and this is where all the heavy union guys are. And I'd get through that, and, and you know, I had my first grievances filed against me, which is a story within itself. But uh, that's there. And so I got through that. And the Sears account, I turned around. Uh, they were leaving AT&T. They owned 12% of all the, the uh, PDXs for AT&T, Sears account did. And I, uh, that was my job, to get this thing turned around. It just so happened that the vice president of IT at Sears was from Mississippi. And so they thought I spoke the same language for this guy. Mm -hmm. He and I could like fishing and he liked duck hunting and maybe I could figure out a way that you know, we could get there and he wouldn't take all our PDXs away. I accomplished that. I got through that. So by the time I got through thrown into those all those wickets, I shared the other grade was when I went to MIT, they sent me to MIT for a charm course. Okay. And uh, that's kind of where I found that out that because uh, everybody at my class at MIT, they were all corporate. And they were all uh, fast rising fast rising individuals in the in their corporations. President Kodak came out of there, you know, out of my class. The guy that ran Chrysler came out of there. All of them were there. What I learned there was, as I sh was sharing in the last group, kind of you put your pants on the same way that everybody else does. You're just the same way. I made a kind of a comment. I looked around at some of those other guys and said, yeah, my gosh, you're in deep trouble in corporations in the world. These are the guys that are going to be leading it, right? <laughs> so it kind of gave you a different kind of confidence level. Okay? And up until those points, I was I was just running scared. I mean, do a good job, work hard, do that. And that's what AT&T, and it's also the risk taking. Thus being thrown into these jobs and knowing you're going to be fired, there's a sense of having a risk there. And I learned that you just suck up risk. I mean, you, you step out and do it. And that it's not nearly as bad as you make it in your mind. So now if you're jumping out and doing these other things, was not nearly as risk oriented as I potentially perceived. Okay? Yeah, so this is a great segue. Uh, where's Omar? Okay. Omar, appreciate Omar you identifying yourself. Uh, Omar asked the question then what was your decision to leave ATT after all that time and what prompted that? Um, three pieces MIT. Found out I put my pants on the same way as anybody else. Okay? Uh, I started getting, uh, when I came back from AT&T, first job I had was the, the uh, engineering planning for all, all the technologies except the big switching machines. And so because of that role, I, you know, I started getting headhunters coming in. Um, so that started me thinking, well, maybe I want to do something else. Second big thing, my wife and I just didn't want to live in New York. And at that time, AT&T, corporate headquarters, in uh, Basking Ridge, New Jersey. We were going to be in New York. It was, I ran New York City for uh, AT&T. And, you know, there's a better way to spend your time commuting, okay? Uh, 
Yeah, the third, I think the, uh, you know, the third piece is I, uh, I, I should just drop this one. I, there was a guy, as I related a story to Eric earlier, uh, there was a guy who, uh, who was way up on my, my boss when I entered the company, and uh, he took me on when I was like, he took me on in a negative way when I was about four months in the company. And that was one of those little scar tissues. When I got to take over the New York and New England states, I had all the long distance. He had the special services. He was my peer, and I just didn't like it. And he had a desk over there, and I had a desk here. And I saw how he did things, and I didn't like that. So the combination of the three said, uh, this is probably not where I wanted to do. And I did want to go build companies. I mean, that, by that time, I said, hey, let me see how I can go do that. And that was the first time I started really thinking about doing that. So uh, after, after this experience, you, you went uh, sort of to different countries and then started building what amounted to a lot of different companies. So Ashley, where's Ashley? Minkle, where are you? Where are you? Before being shy, she asked, "What are some of the problems you had with the bilingual staff and employees um, across that time period?" And you asked, "Thank you. Take a risk." Ashley's <laughs> so, up there. Okay. Uh, what were what were the complications of running them? Well, uh, a lot. Uh, the um, let me take the first with BT. It was international. And they, the idea when we launched was so good, other telephone companies wanted to be involved. And they're very powerful, like NTT in Japan, France Telecom, uh, Deutsche Telecom. And so for BT to, to keep sanity within the industry and keep everybody from launching out all out war with each other, they made the company I had a joint venture. And what that gave them, uh, what the other people did, is they wanted officers in the staff. So my officer corps uh, for British Telecom, or for Syncordia, I had uh, Japanese, I had French, I had British, and I had Americans, all as officers. And I, uh, I got, in fact, I had a... Uh, consultant come in and build a cross-cultural course for us just to let everybody know how everybody was approaching the problem. Because your value systems and how you think is how you uh, how you approach your the problems. So the guy next to you may not be totally insane. It's just that he's approaching the problem. So you have to understand that. So all my officers were trained in that. And then we did started doing the same thing with the mid-level management. And, and then we brought in the different, different nationalities and we had a course built for that, to do that. So it was it. But you always have potential conflicts, cultural conflicts, just, just because it's there. And so the kind of people, I had a very good personnel staff. Like I was just talking to my vice president of human resources about, about three weeks ago. She was phenomenal. And, uh, and, and cutting, she, you know, she was kind of my alert team jump in, but that was those were problems. And when we did it with GTS, we had a lot more control because the, uh, the companies were self-contained. So the Czech company 
Yeah, the Ukrainian company, they were all self-contained and they didn't need to just talk. It was more of a problem of how to manage them. And since I was training the CEOs, I spent a lot of time going around and building a relationship with those guys. So it ended up, in the short term, becoming a lot of one-on-one with me and helping them get their companies. And we didn't have to have as much dialogue because the companies were self-contained within the nationality there. Awesome. So as this continued to grow, uh, Matt actually asked, uh, with all these different companies, you mentioned that sometimes 40-plus different companies, how did you manage that, and what was your role on a day-to-day basis of that, um, focusing on the different business business entities beneath that they were still generating profitable? Yeah, well, it moved up. I think I (coughs) shared with you that by that time, 40% 40% of my time was outward oriented to investors because we had a lot of money <coughs> of other people and they wanted to know how their money was doing. So the companies, uh, I brought in, uh, actually I had two different CFOs during that period. And the, the CFO on Wall Street is viewed just as important as the CEO. In fact, there's, there are informal rules on Wall Street about a CFO. Whoever is caught lying or misrepresenting the number to, um, to the investment community, he's dead for his career. And they look to him to validate what the CEO is telling people, the investors. So you've got to have a great CFO. And that great CFO has got to build his own control systems. Uh, you hear controls, controls, and control. But he's got to have his financial controls into those companies and make sure that the reporting is in a, in a regular basis in such a way that he is seeing blips come up and there's something there, which management then needs to go address. So I, for, my, for me, it had moved to the financial management of those companies. And I brought in a COO who's responsible was taking care of firing people, changing people. And I had various uh, subject matter positions that knew what needed to be done. And I didn't have to spend as much time to go down and actually try to actually hands-on the company now. But I hired the guys or I bought the company. I had to go out there time-wise. So the other 60% of the time was out there managing uh, being being out there with the companies, with the employees, letting them see who I was, having you know hard conversations and things like that. But the day-to-day management had transitioned up to the financial. Could you speak to an example or two of maybe where you had to dive back down uh, in your team? Uh, yeah, I mean. Um, <laughs> The Russian companies <clears throat> were the most mature. I think I showed you Soros had asked me to look at a number of companies in Russia. And there were four of them, and I needed to pull those together. What we needed was a um, uh, operating guy who could really run because we had a lot of companies in Russia. So I had a, if you will, a senior vice president over the Russian properties. And uh, <clears throat> he had to be able to speak. Russian, because we had joint ventures, or had one 50-50 joint venture with the Russian telephone company, which is a very powerful organization there. And then. He had to be able to work with them, and he had to be able to grow. 
Uh, he had to be able to operate because their skills were not nearly as attuned as ours in running companies. And uh, <clears throat> so one of the problems was um, our lawyers picked up a, uh, got a call in a, uh, from a, uh, a person who said, we believe you violated the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And we think that you're paying uh, this these employees down below, Russian government employees. And, um, you know, that, that was just about how interesting. I was out and having a vacation with the chairman of the company. Uh, the, investor, the investors kept the chairman, I was the CEO, down, but they, they had a chairman. So I get this call and said, i got to go to Russia. Now, we had <coughs> the lawyers uh, incognito go through and look at this process, what was going on and what happened. And it turns out that the individual, uh, when we first went into Russia, we cut a contract, like you cut a contract with Holiday Inns here, for Holiday Inns to use your long distance for people coming out, and Holiday Inns gets a piece of the action. You know, so they charge your minutes going out of a hotel, they'll charge you whatever, 50 cents a minute, and they keep 20 cents and you get the other 30 cents. That's kind of how the deals are done. He had done a typical deal like that. And it was with the National Hotel, and that's the name of the hotel, in Moscow. And so <coughs> it so happened that the National Hotel was still 55% owned by the Russian government. So therefore, it is a official entity. It's a, it's a government entity on the, in, under the law. And he had cut this deal. But the part that complicated it was the money that this, you know, the 20 cents that was going to the National Hotel, the manager there was pocketing the money. He wasn't putting it into the hotel. He was taking the money. So I got this separate report on that, and uh, you know that was I understood what was going on. So I called Henry, Henry knew his name. Said, Henry, just so my eyes said, did you do this? Did you go do this deal? And is this happening? No, I didn't do that. Okay. Lawyers get this documented report, so I jump on a plane to Moscow and go see Henry. And I said, Henry, we're going to have breakfast. <coughs> and I said, I want you to think really hard about what happened, and I want you to tell me the truth of what happened. And I had already gotten fairly well documented. And I said, Henry, I had breakfast. Are you, I mean, did you do this contract? Did you do this? And is the money going there? No. I said, thank you very much, Henry. You're terminated as of this moment. And uh, you can go back to the office tomorrow and get your stuff. Uh, we will pay you one ticket back to the U.S. And uh, now, my board was almost in a dead roach position. Okay? Dead roach position. Everybody's in a dead roach, right? And they flip over on their back and they kick their legs up and down like this, you know. That. And so the, uh, the issue was that... 85% of our net income came out of Russia at that point in time. 
So we were actually net income positive, but it was all coming down to Russia. Henry was an operator. You can't find operators in Russia. He spoke Russian English, and I would fire him over essentially lying to me. So I had to jump down and then kind of take it and redo that. Now, just the uh, principle out of this. From my perspective, when you go in and build a company, there, everybody talks about the vision. You know, get, this is what we want to do. Well, coming alongside the vision, equally strong are the values. You better articulate what your values are for money, because that is how the company is going to change. And they're, they're sacrosanct. And in an international company with lots of money flowing, you better make sure that, I mean, you, I had to make sure that everybody was telling the truth. I mean, it was loose. The company was loose, but we were moving so fast. I couldn't have one of my senior officers lie to me. And if I had kept him, because everybody knew he lied to me, if I had kept him, that would have shot a message across the entire company about what our values were. So keeping that value was much more satisfying. So that was the degree of having that jump down. That awesome. Okay. A couple students are asking, out of all these jobs that you've had, both uh, at a big company, entrepreneurially, and then nonprofit and government, which was your favorite and then why? Well, they're all different. And uh, I could go give you scar tissue from each one of them. Um, but probably the. Um, Ah, well, that's a, that's a tough one. I, um, probably the National Counterterrorism Center, building that, because it was so important. And it was new turf, you know, and my job was to pull government agencies together and make them work with each other. NCTC is the only other organization outside OMB that has the power to direct agencies in the U.S. government. So I could tell DOD, you will do this. Because that was a crisis moment, and I like power, and it's really nice to you know be able to do that, right? So that was a that was a fun thing. Uh, but no, NCTC uh, was fun because there was such a lack of leadership across, and and people respond to leadership. And when you get in, and you got something so important, that even some of the. the People that you never have their voices here say, I think we should do this, and you say, that's a good idea, grab it and run. It empowered the organization, and we made lots of things happen. Very quick. The biometric thing, which I sometimes I go off on, I became the biometric expert for the U.S. government, which is a scary thought. Okay? Uh, it had nothing to do with nuclear. But the uh, how that happened was we had to get this biometric repositories all over the government. But nobody shares their biometric. Nobody, uh, they can't even talk to each other. And we had to quickly support what you're seeing in the airlines. And you know, when you get your, show your picture, and you have your thumbprint on that, uh, whatever, it rips across the world and you're checked against like, several databases. And so that it comes back in a 15-minute basis and says, you're not on the watch list. Okay, that, that getting those uh, databases searched and built and doing that, 
uh, was hard to do. And we had to do it quickly and try to do the policy so the president would sign off and tell the agency <coughs> this is what you're going to do in this time frame. I had the pleasure of making uh, the first set of MBOs in the executive. Everybody hears about Obama's executive directives right now. Well, they, those have been around, but the executive directive on the biometrics thing was like an MB, like you're writing your MBOs. You know, the, the uh, Department of Homeland Security will do the following things by this date, and will report on a quarterly basis back to uh, we have an individual as to the accomplishment of that objective, and so that it all integrated together. And that was probably more rewarding to doing that. Nothing more. Let me get back at the government for a short period of time. So, yeah. On to your career um, career path here, uh, a number of students are asking and, and have asked previous speakers what um, what sort of drove your career from more of the traditional engineering path with that degree into where you were largely uh, leading businesses and making uh, employing mostly business practices. Um, I never really got to use it. Engineering degree, except I had a problem on in NCTC how to keep weapons of mass destruction from coming across our borders, and uh, I was dealing with the Department of Energy and the nuclear and some others to try to integrate, and, and we did get down to some things that I remembered in my nuclear course. But that was about the the, the rest of the career. Uh, I share with some of the engineering degree from Mississippi State opened the doors for my job opportunities. And AT&T normally doesn't need a nuke. Okay, that's not one of their uh, markets. But the engineering degree, they won't like me out. So that opened the door for me. The other, the job opportunities they presented to me, the general management, that I kind of got thrown to management on day one. So I... The skill sets of learning how to manage came as on-the-job training experience going through that. Switching to when you want to build companies, I've kind of shared that already. Uh, I really did when I got uh, over a point that I was scared of myself. I mean, not being scared of myself, but can I really do this or not do this? When I was willing to take the risk, then I had a desire to go uh, and start a company and try to see if I could go do that. And I did not have the fear of failure. I shared in the, uh, this last session. Uh, we are, and I, you learned this in, I learned this in the UK, we are one of the few countries, not few, I mean, like the only one. It's not the UK, it's not France, that you can go get somebody's money and run out and lose that money trying to run a good idea. And we actually reward people for that. Even if you fail. I call that scar tissue. And the reason is, is because that scar tissue, hey, you tried this thing. The next guy next to you has not tried this thing. And he doesn't know about all those little pitfalls. He doesn't know the cash is key. He doesn't know these things. And so it's not you. When you tell somebody, I tried to start a company here. And it didn't work, or I ran out of money, or the idea didn't work, or whatever. Uh, when people are hiring, they, you've got all kinds of people. Right? I mean, you see, lots of people have that. 
So that is the uh, that's the unique experience in the U.S. And that's the one thing that I could just encourage everybody to think about that. Uh, don't hold yourself back. Worst thing you can do is fight with yourself. If you've got an idea, go do it. Did I miss the question? Probably no, that's good. I, I wondered if the last uh, 10, 15 minutes of your class, if you might go through your uh, lessons learned slide and share some uh, some light on some of those. Uh, no. I'll come to you guys and tell me I was wearing this orange tag. <laughs> starting to look like an idiot up here. Okay. Um, a lot of these I've kind of covered. Uh, this point of work. Risk and reward pays off. Don't be afraid to, to take a smart risk. I mean, obviously, you just don't jump out and do something without thinking first. And I've said that. Uh, the reward, you get rewarded either way. You jump out and start it, and it hits. I've been to cash out three times, and you know, the financial rewards are substantial. But even if you don't do that, that you did it, Take you uh, a step better than the next guy. It's a lot of things that you learn. A uh, thing which I think y'all have all heard. Uh, you don't get there. You 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 see a lot of people who try to do it the easy way. Right? They uh, they want the reward, but they're not really willing to work at it. And you've got to have you got. I went in. I worked very very hard. At I worked long hours and did things. But you're miserable if you're not having fun. I happen to enjoy getting thrown into complex problems and getting put into these different things. I thrive in that world. And so that was fun for me. Other people that would be making their hair out. That's not fun. So you just need to make sure that where you're going, that you enjoy it. Uh, this is one I throw in. So when you're CEOs or you're looking at CEOs, make this uh, thing. Don't ever second guess. Why did the CEO make that stupid decision? The reason is you can't recreate the environment, the, the things that are happening around you. So when I have to make firing Henry, I had the board who, man, they have, we were making a lot of money behind them. And I'm going to blow up Russia by firing this guy over lying to me. Uh, I've got my employees that I have to worry about. I've got my customers. In this case, I had the, the government of Russia. So there are all kinds of things that you have to take into consideration when you make a decision at the CEO. And that, you know, the old rule is, if you get it right 60% of the time, you're really doing good, okay? You're not going to make decisions right 100% of the time. And the key is, if you get your 60%, and the 40% that you do bad, that's the wrong decision, you know where you're going to fall back to, right? You know, if I, this goes wrong, this is what I'll go to. So you don't want to run yourself out on so far on the limb if your decision's bad. But that's that's what I need about CEO. Focus and deliver. AT&T, I, I kind of get that. The job, I got evaluated every quarter. That was the program. I was a supervisor 
It's a group of fourth-level managers that got reports from my second, third-level boss. They got the thing, and you know, I would say, this is what I'm going to do in my job. The next quarter, they would say, did he do it? What's he doing? And it really learned, you learned to focus. You can't kind of go tripping through the two of them. And so you need to know what you want to do and don't focus and do it. And that really helped me a lot. It's the same way when you get other people's money. You say you're going to go do this, uh, you can go a long way with investors. If you do what you say you're going to do, it may not work exactly. But if you're all over the tulip field, so well, I didn't do that. I decided to go do this, I did that. That, you know, you just have to focus. Yeah. Cash is king. I've already said that. Um, I really thought it was about profitability. And uh, profitability has nothing to do uh, in a startup company. It really didn't have that much to do with mezzanine companies, mezzanine oil companies. When you get into both companies, you know, getting the cash flow, you know, cash flow even and now start showing the profit, that's, that starts to become an important thing in terms of your EBITDA and things like that. But you don't focus on those other things until that. I have just said unique lessons. I, I can go through every job and say, I walked away with this set of scar tissue from that job. So every thing that you do, uh, is put on a number of task forces, adds to your repertoire. And so I'm trying to say here, don't be afraid to jump in and do those other things because it's, it's a unique scar tissue that adds up. And someday you're going to use that, that scar tissue. All scar tissues added it, which is uh, one of my favorite cities. And I, got that, I think I got that from a preacher somewhere. But I, uh, you know, your muscle when you're building weights, right, that scar tissue. And I'm just saying, every one of these events that you do is adding to that scar tissue. That's building that muscle tissue for you in terms of who you are and how you're going to do that. And that's uh, part. Uh, talk about putting your pants on. The three-year rule I haven't covered a bit in length. And this is one that uh, I learned through real experience. Uh, you're a growth company. You're building companies. And it's even some of you are have it in your startup companies. I don't know how many of y'all are doing your companies now, but let's say you've got 10 students and they're all clicking. They're really doing well and you like them all. And then you're now starting to take it out and you're going to get invested in the next level. So you're the CEO. My three-year three rule is this. You should be looking at every person in that company daily and saying, does this person have the skills and what I need for him or her to be running that job three years from today. And the reason you say three years from today is because it takes you in a normal company going forward. You can't do it. Um, it takes you about three years to totally replace that person. So if you're the guy I'm going to fire and I know that uh, I don't want you three years from now because you're not going to be capable of doing that. Then I need to decide, well, how am I going to transition you out? If I just come in and fire a bullet and shoot you, that disrupts the company. Okay? Doesn't work real well. So I got to do a way to transition you. I got to find, it takes usually in a, in a large company, it takes about another year to successfully advertise, go through your candidates, find the guy, get the person in, to the job, okay? 
And that takes another year for that person to come up to the same speed that the person was that you just let go. So that's the, that's the metric that I use. And as I shared with um, Eric before in my GTS company, uh, we started off, there were 11 people there, were five Americans and six Russians in those companies that Soros had. And uh, the five were the, they crowned themselves different officers. So starting with there, I ended up having to replace all the officers three times over that four-year period because we had moved through what I saw as a phase of company and I had to say, this person isn't going to be the person to be carried. So I actually rotated the officers out. Now I said, that sounds hard, but the good news was they got to keep their stock and every one of them ended up being a multimillionaire from what they had made in that period. So they, you know, it wasn't that they got bruised totally bad, but they, some of them, it was bad. So, yeah, uh, last one, which has come more in the last 10 years, uh, particularly since Hart Scott Rodino uh, actually had the uh, saying is, if you don't need the money, and you your company to try not to go to the public markets to get your money. Because public markets bring all kinds of strings, and I said I had to switch my way of managing because we had to uh, raise all this money, and I essentially became managing investors. And you don't want to get in that position. So if you don't have to go to the public market, if you can get private financing and generate internal cash flows to pay for your growth, far better off than having now. You can't build fiber optic networks across Europe with private equity money. You can't get enough private equity money to do that. So there are times that you have to get money. And you have to take your company public or you've got to get public, public debt to do that. But in general, I'd say, you know, still do that. that. Any questions from that or... This is really bad. You get, you get to ask the questions over there, and I can't put it in your eyeballs and see what you really uh, what the question really is. This puts me in a total disadvantage for my style. Anything else? Any other questions? Any last-minute questions of anybody not want to do what I did? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you.